Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Pod Strickland. I'm your host, Shwinipu, in this episode 251. I'm joined on this uh, chilly Monday morning, but a victory Monday morning, uh, by my co-host, Stace, by my co-host, Stacey Pan. What is that? Stacey Pan 89. Stacey, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Uh, nice win yesterday. Yes, uh, it was a good win. Uh, and to discuss that win and much more, we are joined... By friend of the pod, Ariel Pacheco. That is at a Pacheco NBA on Twitter. Ariel, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Good to be here. Nice to have you on. Uh, and we have plenty to discuss. But before we get started, I do have to make a few announcements. The first being that the Strickland has an Instagram. You should give that a follow. Check that out. We're posting a lot of new content and stuff on there. Uh, and we have plans to. Uh, to use that to do fun things. So check it out. That is at the strict.land on Instagram. We also have a YouTube page. Uh, if you can subscribe to that, help us get to 1,000. That would be a massive help. Uh, that is the Strickland on YouTube. So check that out. You can watch this video and other videos, uh, other podcasts, and other breakdowns uh, that we do on there. You also... <laughs> must at some point know that the Strickland has a Patreon. You can subscribe to that. There are a number of tiers. There's a $6 tier that gets you access to this pod that I host on Fridays with Prez, Pod Strickland. Uh, you also get access to the Strickland Discord where the conversation never stops. And you also get access to the mailbag that comes out every other week that is hosted by Andrew Steele, a.k.a. Doug, the Doug Bag. There are further tiers. There's a $9 tier that gets you access to wonderful weekly articles written by Jack Cuntley and Matthew Miranda, two of the best in the business. You also get access to Strick and Roll, my solo pod, where I rant and rave about the Knicks even more. There are further tiers. There's a $15 tier, $30 tier, $50 tier, and $100 tier. Those come with a variety of additional benefits, like listening in on pod recordings, merchandise discounts, and even potentially co-hosting a podcast alongside yours truly one day. Whether you choose to subscribe or not, none of this would be possible without you. So, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, the Knicks had, I don't know, I guess we can call it an interesting weekend. Uh, they had a pretty good first half against Dallas on Saturday, going into the break up seven, and then everything went to shit. They lost 121 to 100. It actually felt much worse than that. They were down by 34, I believe, at one point. Um, the third quarter was easily the worst quarter of this entire Tibbs-Leon regime. Uh, pretty atrocious stuff. Also felt like Dallas basically just took advantage of exactly what the Knicks defense is schemed up to concede. Uh, and they were ruthless about it and capitalized on all of it. Um, the Knicks did bounce back. With a 92-81 victory over the Cavs yesterday, a very, really weird game. Uh, I didn't even watch it live. I recorded it and watched it after. Really weird game. I don't know. The refs were calling travels on everything. It was insane. Uh, I and I saw like I look. I I just want to say this, and I'm going to turn it over to you guys. But like, did I think RJ Barrett had a good first half? No, I, I didn't. 
I didn't like tip like that's a bad first half to me because he shot poorly. It was not the type of bad half or bad performance that we have been seeing from him at like the start six of the year. Turnovers too. Yeah, before them were travels, and I don't know if any of those were really travels. Like, I mean, maybe they were, but it's just like, who the fuck is calling this shit? Um, but like, I didn't think he was engaging in terrible process. I didn't think his shot selection was terrible. I didn't think he was looking off open teammates. I didn't think he was forcing shit that didn't need to be forced. I just thought he shot poorly, and then he had a decent second half. And at the end of the day, he has what he ends up with fifteen points on thirteen shots. Um, is do you want more? Yeah, I want more. But like, like I, I think it's important for him to have games like this where he starts poorly and then finds a way to contribute to a win while not doing it by just hunting and taking a shit ton of shots. Because uh, we've seen him have games, especially this season, where he tries to shoot himself uh, back into it. And I thought he didn't do that in this game. I think he ended up going, what, I think he was one of eight in the first half. I think he ends up going four or five in the second. So didn't force out of the action. Um, you know, he had eight rebounds. Like he, he, I thought he just found a way to contribute without trying to just get himself right uh, by jacking up a lot of shots. And that's important for him to have games like that. Of course, as I said, you want more. You want to see him string together consistent, very good games, very good performances. Uh, but I can't. I thought it was just some of the stuff I saw uh, after the game seemed really over the top um, after I watched it. But yeah, I mean, should he have gotten more minutes than Emmanuel quickly on a night like yesterday? Probably not. But hey, you know what? Uh, Leon is fiercely loyal to Tom Thibodeau, so we're going to see plenty more of this type of asinine decision-making moving forward. So I'm pumped for that, and I hope you guys are too. Uh, Ariel, I'm going to you know, turn this over to you. You know, I think that you, you had maybe the meanest tweet of your life after the game against <laughs> Dallas. Uh, but, like, I think it's, you know, I, I want to ask you this because right or wrong, and I think this is right, I, I and I believe Stacy have a reputation as we're Tibbs haters. Um, I don't think you uh, toss around the criticism as freely as we might. So I just want to know, like, what, you know, I don't I don't have the tweet right in front of me, but I think basically what you were saying is if you think that the Knicks lost just because the Mavericks got hot from three and just made some shots, um, you don't know what you're watching. Do you want, can you elaborate on that? Because I think what you're talking yeah. about is the issues with how we're running this scheme defensively. And I guess the follow-up question to that also would be, um, why is it that we're seeing such slippage defensively last night, uh, barring last night, why are we seeing such slippage defensively this year where the previous two seasons they had been running the same scheme but were able to broadly execute it and have results um, that were good, flat out really good or reasonable at worst? So yeah, um, it, watching that Mavericks game, because that's where it really stood out because I think from the jump, I could kind of see what the Mavericks were trying to do, that, that especially in the first half. It didn't really work too much, but they were trying to get Grimes off Luka. Um, they were trying to get the Mavericks mismatch hunt a bunch. And you see it all the time, no matter who they're playing. And and the second half is when you really started to see it, except they got like a lot more creative instead of just like regular, you know, uh, 
like actions. They started running like guard to guard screens, like with Tim Hardaway Jr. They were really trying to get Jalen Brunson on Luca. Obviously, the Knicks don't want to do that, but they were like having like a lot of miscommunication problems. Um, Grimes and like was trying to fight over the screen, and then Brunson was trying to like hedge. So it, it was like a little bit of like complication on the Knicks side. So then the Mavericks started to get hot because they started getting all these good looks from three, and then. When they did send two to the ball on Luca, there wasn't a third guy running over to rotate to whoever set the screen. So what you saw was just kind of like a whole clusterfuck of like um, miscommunication. And then it led to the Mavericks just t- pulling away with the game. And then I think Tibbs kind of struggled to, to realize that Mitchell Robinson probably shouldn't be playing um, against that Mavericks small lineup. Um, it, took the, it took him like, a lot longer than it should have to, to sub him out. And then when he did, he did go small for a couple minutes. It was Obi and Randall. But then he went right back to Robinson a few minutes after. And then it, it just it just seemed like he didn't understand what was going on. And it was, like, frustrating to watch because I'm like, if I can see it from my TV and, like, <laughs> I have no qualifications and, like, you should be able to see it on the sideline. Um, but I also thought, like, his, if he was going to play a big or if he felt like he had to play a big man against that small lineup, he should have gone to Jericho Sims. Um, I don't think iHeart was the was the guy there or Mitch for that game if you're against that small lineup. Uh, but I mean, in the end, like it just it just felt like a culmination of like all these issues. And then you mentioned the scheme earlier. Um, it's just like they're they're giving up corner threes to just on purpose. And and I know that's kind of what they did their the COVID season when they had all the success. Um, but even then, there was always a lot of noise of, of opponent three-point shooting luck, and everyone was saying that the Knicks were getting lucky in, in, a, in a sense. But, you know, the numbers never – they, they kind of stayed the same, so nobody really questioned it because if it works, why question it? But I think now we're seeing, like, kind of the downside to it, um, the protect the rim at all costs. It, you know, obviously has its benefits. You know, I think Mitchell Robinson has been really good in, in the season defensively when he's been healthy. And he's holding down the thing. And I think a lot of times they're overhelping, like, especially now that Grimes is in the starting lineup. And he, he, he's very good at recovering. And it just feels like you don't have to send that much help, especially from the corner. Like, I, I understand, like, wanting to send help from, like, the wing or something like that. But it, it just feels like – and then the execution just isn't there as well. It's just – it's just everything just seems, like, so hard for them and unnecessarily hard. Yeah, we, we, the scheme is an interesting point. I also think – um, I'd be curious to your thoughts on this too. Um, that first COVID season, and even last year, um, last year the Knicks did improve over the course of the season. Still gave up a ton of um, threes, but I think how they made that equation work was one, force a low percentage at the rim, and two, they've been a good defensive rebounding team, especially when Mitchell Robinson is healthy. But I think to your point, you can't give up tons of quarter threes and be a, a poor offensive or a poor defensive rebounding team. Uh, how much do you think that's been a factor? Oh, it definitely has hurt. I think there's been a drop, especially especially with the bench. The bench has really struggled to rebound. Um, I do think that kind of having I, I think another added benefit of having Grimes in the starting lineup is I think he's a decent rebounder, especially for his position. Um, I've, I've been really impressed with his rebounding ability. But I, I think, again, too, it's just a lot of it is, and this isn't me just putting the blame on one person, but Julius Randle needs to box out a little more. Um, and I just, I don't know, it just feels like, like the execution just on every aspect, of, on the defensive end, from the rebounding to, to, to the defense, it just feels like 
is a lot missing. Like that element that they've had when they've had success just isn't there. Yeah, I think um, one thing to note about Grimes, and I look, I think this is what's notable about Grimes and quickly and Deuce when he gets minutes, um, and <laughs> I guess Cam when he's engaged and or in the rotation which times been, this season. I mean, he's been engaged pretty frequently, I'd say. Yeah, I, I, we'll talk about the camp thing. I think that entire situation, I think Tibbs is a fucking joke, and I can't believe that that's his. that was his takeaway uh, and his decision after that Dallas debacle and the fact that it seems like Deuce only played because Rose had some designated rest day um, and he's going to be back in the rotation, which is fucking absurd organizational malpractice. Tibbs should be fired for that, and if Leon can't do that because he's fiercely loyal to Tibbs, he can fucking go too. Um, but to go back to uh, what I was going to say, like the one thing I think that's really notable. So in like in in the NFL, like there's this idea, like they're running backs, right? Running backs generally, there's a broad concept of like running backs are overvalued. You know, most of what they produce is actually produced by the offensive line. Blah 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 blah. But there are running backs who play above the scheme. Right, so they can give you plus value on top of what the offensive line is producing, or they can flat out produce even with a bad offensive line. Um, Giants fans would know this when they saw Saquon do what he did in his rookie season uh, with a terrible offensive line. That would be an example of an our running back playing above the scheme. I think what's notable about Grimes and Quickly and Deuce, and the reason why they've had this kind of like very obvious defensive impact this season, is those are guys that are playing above the scheme. And what I mean by that is, yes, they are doing the same rotations that others are doing, and they are ultimately giving up the same type of shots that, that the scheme gives up. But what they're able to do is they're, they're able and they're willing to get out to that corner shooter and put in a good contest or run them off the line. They are going and trying to get contested rebounds, which has been a massive issue for this team. They are... Like you see this all the time when Deuce is in the game, or when like you know when two when two of those guys are on the floor at the same time, you see them switching off seamlessly. Like you see them just kind of have this uh, ESP defensively where they pick up for each other immediately, and it prevents dribble penetration. Um, that's them playing above the scheme. That's them playing above what is designed and what is being called and what is being executed. And I think that it is fair to be critical of a guy like RJ Barrett for his drop off defensively. It's more than fair to be critical of Julius Randall's defensive effort. Um, but those three are notable to me because they do play above the scheme. So when you, when people are like, well, the, like these guys are doing it. So why can't the team do it? It's because they're good defenders. Like that's a talent. I'm sorry. Like playing good defense is a talent. It's not like, you just, you know, you not everybody can play good defense to the same extent. Um, so, like, when you're playing the scheme and then you're playing some of the rotations and lineups that Tibbs is, you're going to naturally have uh, some lineups that concede shots and stuff that, that are problematic. And is it, like, is that a failure of roster construction? I think it's fair to levy that at the front office to some extent. Uh, but I also think at some point, if you're the coach, like you need to be more adaptable, and maybe that means playing those guys more minutes, or maybe that means you tweak your, you know, what your scheme is calling for. And like, you know, you pointed this out, but like the weak side pick and roll stuff is so frustrating because you're like, 
what is the point of having Mitchell Rob? Like we paid to have Mitchell Robinson here because Tibbs wanted him because he's an elite rim protector. We paid to go get Isaiah Hartenstein, who I personally don't think is a great rim protector, but like grades out as one, right? We have Jericho Sims, who is not a great rim protector, but is a really good switch one to five big. What is the point of having these guys if your scheme doesn't even trust them? Like your scheme isn't trusting them. Your scheme is actually like it's trying to help them when they don't even need help. It's like, and it's not situational help, right? It's not like you're, it, to me, it's, I'm not watching like, when I see RJ or Randall or Grimes or whoever on that weak side crashing down into the paint, it's not an actual read on the play. It is, this is what we have to do no matter what the situation, no matter who is rolling, no matter where. And and because of that, you see a team like Dallas where Luka would come off some of these picks, some of these high screen rolls, not even need to drive at all because he already knows that that weak side guy is in the paint and that his man is wide open in the corner for three. And, and it's also just, worth noting, like, there are probably guards against who that can work who struggle to make that pass. Guys like Luka Doncic and, coincidentally, the other team that torched us has another player like that in Trey Young. Uh, you know, that's where it makes sense to vary a little bit, right? Like, you know, when you have, I mean, going back to football, you have to mix up your coverages more against certain QBs than others, right? Um. Sorry, I mean, I and, and and not just that, and I, 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 I think this is important to note is they like a player like Luka Doncic is going to figure it out no matter what scheme you throw at him, right? He's seen everything. He has seen traps. He's seen blitzes. He's seen drop. He's seen switch. He's he has been forced to play against every single possible pick and roll coverage that exists, right? That's true for him. That's true for Trey Young. That's true for any star ball handler. Really, any lead, not even star ball handler, but lead ball handler in the NBA. You will have seen every single pick and roll coverage at some point. What's important against these stars, like a Luka Doncic, is they're going to figure it out. So you need to constantly be playing, like switching and adapting your scheme. And like, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's just like you can't go, go for, 40, for 48 minutes. You cannot play the same exact coverage against a player like Luka Doncic. He's going to figure it out, and he's going to make you pay. And if you don't, and if you do that, like, like it, again, like it, it really wasn't surprising. And, and when the Knicks have failed this year, and like when things have really gone to shit, you know, th- like I tweeted this out, but like this was the Dallas game was exactly like the, the Hawks game. And the Hawks game was a game where Trey Young actually missed a bunch of that game, right? Because he got hit in the face. And they still went on a run without him because we were playing the same exact coverages on DeJounte Murray the entire time. He figured it out. He had a hot shooting night too, but like he figured it out and they just torched us. And there was no adjustment, just like there was no adjustment against Dallas. There was no feel for the game. There was nothing happening. So, and there's not, I mean, sometimes it can just be, you know, a couple of possessions here, switch it up just to keep them off balance to your point, you know, like you can't just, you can't just be that predictable. I just, I just think they have nothing else to turn to. They don't. They don't try anything like whatsoever. There was a couple possessions against the Thunder. I don't remember if it was the first Thunder game or the second one. I think it was the second one um, with Mitchell Robinson. They did a couple like late switches where where it was late in the shot clock and Mitchell Robinson got onto SGA, and I was like, oh, this is good. And SGA didn't even try to attack him. He had no interest. He just passed it off, and like. I don't know. I don't know why there's such a hesitancy from Tibbs to like to do that. Like, I don't. I think Mitchell Robinson has lost a step when it comes to like switching, like where he was like very early in his career. Um, 
like Dinwiddie got him on a on a blow by the other the other night. But I do think like guys like Sims and even Ihar, who who when he was with the Clippers, he showed some things that, where he could hang with a guard for a couple possessions if he needed to. Um, and I don't know. I, I just think that they're they, the Knicks have very good defenders. Their younger guys are usually the very good are the their best defenders, but they don't really like get to do much instead of like outside of navigating pick and rolls on defense or and then like you mentioned earlier the playing above the scheme like like Emmanuel quickly is a perfect example of that just with how he plays off the ball and he's like I think the best team defender on, on the on the roster but it's just like I don't know I, I wish there was more things that Thibodeau would turn to because there is a lot of defensive talent on this team but I do think the bad defenders the Knicks have are like very they tank the defense as well though yeah, it's um I mean I guess philosophically, right? Um cuz I think you got into a discussion with this with a few people about this um Schwinn. Um you know and and you know I'll, I'll throw this to Ariel. Do you think the scheme is necessarily antiquated? Um you know for example, you know if they do have a good defensive rebounder, you know are you can you bleed some of those corner threes and still get away with it? Um you know if they if they cover up the other parts, right? Or do you think this is just necessarily an antiquated scheme, and you know it, it caps the Knicks ceiling? I think there there are ways to you know there are teams in the NBA who give up a corner a bunch of corner threes and they're able to live with it. There's obviously scheme differences, but I I just think that those teams have longer, rangier defenders. I do think the Knicks' better defenders are all relatively like small. Yeah, quickly has like an above average wingspan, so this dude's but. It's different from like the Raptors who have like OG, Pascal, Scotty. You know what I'm saying? They can, the they Knicks can cover one, a lot more ground. The Knicks have one player like that, and Tibbs just nailed him to the bench. So. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it's not, but I, I don't think it's antiquated. I think that it needs, it needs players to kind of always be on 10, always be like locked in and, and ready to execute. And that's asking a lot, especially during an 82 game season. It's, it's a scheme that requires complete buy in. It requires players to put in, like, this rotation we're talking, like, do you know how taxing it is to be the weak side? Okay, you have to tag down no matter what. And then, because this is the modern NBA, teams always have a corner shooter there. They're probably going to find that guy uh, plenty of times. So once you tag down, you also have to recover out to your shooter, run him off the line. And you also have to recover in a way that doesn't allow a blow-by. And it's like, you're doing this, like, this is why... People say Tibbs wears his teams out. I don't think it's like a he's actually wearing them out physically. I I I still think that's like a very massive exaggeration of what happens. What I think he does wear out though is he loses buy-in because guys don't want to keep executing this year after year after year. It is hard. It's really hard to stay locked in. And it's also hard when you don't like again. Tibbs coached, like, aside from the Alfred Payton thing, everything he did in 2020, 2021 was pretty good. You know, I mean, we can sit here and talk about, oh, well, this was a bad thing. He won coach of the year. I had no, I thought he deserved to win coach of the year, even though there were other candidates who also deserved to win coach of the year. Um, he, he did a great job. He, since then, I feel like he wants everything to stay the same. Like, he wants everything to be the same. He wants, Obi Toppin to be a 16-minute-a-night guy that just spells Julius Randle. He wants R.J. Barrett to be the third option and 
you know, like like he he doesn't really have a plan to expand his role or expand Obi's role or expand Emmanuel Quickly's role. Like and and for guys like that, when you're younger, I think it's hard to stay bought in. Now, is that entirely on Tibbs? No, it's not. Like guys need to be professional. And to be fair, like RJ hasn't like he has gotten somewhat of an expanded role for sure, and he hasn't been wonderful or great in it. So like that's on him. Um and he's been awful defensively and that's also on him like he's got to be better but i think it's really hard for guys to stay locked in and and just keep executing the same scheme over and over and over again and i thought what we saw against dallas i'll say this i know it sounds absurd because it was such a massive gap right that the score ended up being so lopsided i thought that was a coaching loss i thought that was a total coaching loss to me that was a schematic everything about your schematic choices were they were taken advantage of and then you didn't pivot at all during the game which just exacerbated them even further um and this is the reality okay this is this is just a fact if you are in, in the modern nba okay every def- any defense you have no matter what how good the defense is you're it's it's all kind of like a you know, risk reward thing, right? Like no matter what you're doing, right? Whatever your goal is on defense, we want to deter shots at the rim. We don't want to give up threes. There's a there's a risk and reward to it. Okay. So you're never going to be able to shut off every single, you know, positive value shot for an opponent. But the fundamental reality is this, okay? If you are going to be 24th in forcing turnovers, if you are going to be this, we won't want to allow any shots at the rim. We will give up corner threes if that's the case. You cannot be the 25th ranked defensive rebounding team in the NBA by defensive rebound percentage. You can't. You cannot have that. Because not only are you giving up corner threes to pack the paint, you're not getting turnovers. And you're not closing possessions with rebounds. And like, and is that yes, fair to can... say that was the biggest difference between this year and the pandemic year, even last year when they finished at yes. the 11th? Yeah. Yes, 100%. Like it is, and, and I don't know what the reasoning is. I don't know if that's, is that personnel? Is that teams kind of becoming wise to the fact that we don't have, like there are multiple guys in this team that don't box out? Is it just pure laziness on the part of players? I think it's all of the above. But like, Maybe you adapt to that. Like, maybe you don't have the greatest defensive rebounding team, right? Like, Obi's not a great defensive rebounder. Julius Randle's not a great defensive rebounder. RJ Barrett has had issues defensive rebounding this year, although he has been pretty good over his career. Hartenstein uh, is not a Hartenstein is a, yeah, he's a terrible defensive rebounder. Uh, even Jericho Sims has issues defensive rebounding. He just jumps really high, uh, but he doesn't really seem to time his jumps very well. Uh, Cam Reddish, when he's in the rotation, has been a pretty bad defensive rebounder. Derek Rose, not a great defensive rebounder. So you have a lot of guys who are getting minutes who are not good, good or great defensive rebounders. That's the personnel you have. And you can make two choices as a coach. You can say, play my scheme, get better at it, and just hope guys get better at it. Or you can tweak your scheme to play into different strengths or abilities of your roster. And I do think this is a team that has the type of wingspan and active defenders, or enough of them, that you can get into the passing lanes and you should be able to produce and generate more turnovers than you do. Uh, and I think that is a real frustration for me watching this team because that like that weak side corner pass we give up, I, I feel like 
if you if your scheme is just slightly less so focused on protecting the rim at all costs to the point that weak side guy is tagging down two feet into the paint every time, if he's just out playing that lane another two steps, you're probably getting another turnover or two like in a in a game. You're probably and like I, I know that sounds like very minimal. That's a massive difference. Like turnovers are probably live ball turnovers often lead to the best quality shots in the NBA. You know, we see that with the Knicks all the time with opponents when we do when we do have bad turnover games, um, how that costs them. But like th- it's just live ball turnovers are the most valuable thing in the in the game. And just as an example, uh okay, so the Knicks give up No, it's one reason why but, sorry. It's one reason yeah. why a guy like Ricky Ruby always showed up really well um in advanced mm-hmm. stats because steals are that valuable that valuable, right? So yeah, and just just as a very quick thing, the Knicks give up the third most corner threes in the NBA, or percentage of threes conceded. They give up the third most of corner threes in the NBA. Uh, so over just, so of the of the threes they give of the threes everyone gives up, they give up the highest percentage that are from the corner versus the arc. That's what you're saying. Right? Yeah, they yeah they give up the third highest third highest. Right. Um, number one is Phoenix. Number two is Dallas, and number four we'll just use this team as a proxy, is the Toronto Raptors. Okay, they give up 25.5% to the Knicks' 26.1%. Okay, fine. Now, the Toronto Raptors are ninth in defensive rebound percentage. The Knicks are 25th. Fun fact, guess who the number one team in in forcing turnovers is? The Toronto Raptors, 15.9% turnover percentage forced that is by far and away the best in the league number two is miami at 14.7 so they're they're lapping the league in this regard and they're a top 10 defensive rebounding team the knicks are 24th 12.1 turnover percentage force like that is the difference if the knicks were defensive rebounding at the same level and if they were forcing they don't even need to force turnovers at, at nearly the level the raptors are i think it's unrealistic to expect them to given the weird nature of the of the Raptors roster but like they can if they were doing those things we wouldn't be talking about oh this defensive scheme is broken it's on Tibbs and it's on like he he has to get buy in or he has to tweak his scheme to adapt to what the roster is the roster he has and i don't know i don't think it's going to happen maybe they'll just get better over the course of the season which I have kind of, I mean, I, I still think they will. I don't know if they'll get good enough. And in the meantime, we're going to see games like we did against Dallas, where it's just like, what the hell is going on here? And why can't, and, and I think more concerning is like, you're always going to have games where teams just figure out what you're doing. You need to be able to switch things up. And he has not shown any ability to switch things up. And that is why the Knicks over the last, since what, January, let's say. So basically it's in 2022, how many horrific, double digit leads have they blown how many like it's and it's always because of this barrage of threes that they concede at a certain point uh you've got that game against the lakers last year you've got that game against at portland last year you've got that loss to brooklyn last season that they gave up a 28 point lead in uh and you have the game against brooklyn this year at well, they didn't have a double. The Knicks didn't have a double digit lead. In that it was just a terrible loss. You've got the game against Atlanta this year. 
You've got the game against Dallas this year. Like these are not just bad law. Like they, they these are not. I don't want to say historic collapses, but it is a string of collapses that, in and of itself, is pretty historic. Um, it, it is at some point you can't just keep saying the players got to do this. That they're letting Tibbs now. They're not executing the scheme. Blah blah blah. No, it's on him, man. Like this roster isn't perfect. It's not great. It's not the greatest team ever assembled or anything. It is better than he's getting out of it. And it's not just better. It's also capable of doing more things than he is allowing it to do because he is so rigid in his ways. He's so rigid about how he wants things to operate. And if you ever listen to him in his post-game press conferences, he never suggests that, yeah, we might need to tweak something. No, never. It's always just, yeah, you know, we got to look at the tape and guys got to execute better. Guys got to play harder. They got to compete harder. It's always just like, no, we got to do this better. And it's never a self-reflection of like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's something I need to look at. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try and figure something else out. Never. Uh, and I, that is like actually very concerning to me and it should be concerning to anybody because if you don't evolve in sports or in any industry, you die. Uh, and the Knicks will continue to have, or you have mass yes, layoffs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, they, they will have games like yesterday where they compete and it's all fine and they win a game and we're all, everybody's wonderful and happy about it, but they will continue to have these horrific collapses fairly frequently because of this lack of adaptability and rigidity. Um, you know, it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, on a slightly happier note, the Knicks did bounce back with a win yesterday. Um, I did want to kind of talk about that. So I probably, I did not rewatch it today. So, you know, in the moment, perhaps I was a little bit more reactionary than you, but, um, but I think I was a little bit more down on RJ's performance than you were. Wasn't in love with the... I think it's better than it was early in the season. There's less tunnel vision. I think this was a step back from the last couple... From, from a couple of games that he's shown recently where he, the process, I would agree, has been much better. Um, I mean, we've seen, like, straight up... Forget, like, just the simple kickouts. We've seen him actually put his head down and throw, like, no-look passes to the corner, uh, which is just <laughs> very much, a, a, you know, a diff, uh, departure from how he had been playing earlier. But yesterday, I, I did feel like he forced a lot of shots. Uh, he did go four for five in the second half. A couple of those were threes. So I, 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 I mean, it, he he forced less shots in the second half. But I did think there were a few instances where he either got bailed out in a foul, or I mean, there were a couple of possessions where he just tried that that fadeaway hook thing over Mobley. Um, that is like anyway my least favorite RJ Barrett shot. Um, and I'm not talking about the flip shot. I'm talking about when he doesn't get the lane to a layup, but he's already committed, so he has to like bounce off or like fall away. And, and I, I hate that shot more than anything in RJ Barrett. He doesn't create separation on it either. That's the biggest problem. Yeah, it's it just needs to go. Um, I, and so yeah, I mean, I, it's a good point that the the turnovers are mostly travels. Uh, I thought his defense was whatever. Uh, I think there was a noticeable. They were noticeably stagnant on both ends when he played with Randall. So I do think RJ with the bench is a is the right move, and pro- <laughs> it, it 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 is the um it is the only benefit I guess of going to a nine man rotation. Um, but um, but the downside is if that was really just a rest day for Rose, um, you know, it, the, 
and I, I'll, so the questions I'll ask Ariel, I, I definitely want your thoughts. One, my being too hard on RJ's performance just, yesterday, but the other thing is like, uh, you know, the, the Cavs shot eight for 35 from three, but that's a good offensive team with a certain player who Knicks fans busted after. And, um, you know, the guys who took him out of his element, he did not have a good game. And I mean, I know that Bondi and every, can you imagine Bondi, by the way, if, if Mitchell gave us 35 again or something? Uh, it, it would have been nauseating. Um, but it was, he was, I mean, you have to look at it and you saw the guys who really disrupted him. And it was noticeably different when, um, when Barrett was on him versus, you know, guys like Grimes and Deuce and obviously quickly. You know, they just looked much more competent against Garland and Mitchell. And I have to ask myself, like, Tibbs, did, was it just for once just to not get torched by, by, by good perimeter players? Wasn't that fun? Wouldn't you want to see that last? Do, do we really know what need to go back to Derrick Rose? But maybe, you know, it could be just the case that, you know, three-point shooting luck. The two questions I want to ask you, Ariel, one, am I being too hard on RJ? And two, how much of, you know, the Knicks having a good defensive performance was just three-point luck? And you think that Mitchell and Garland missed a lot of open looks versus, you know, things that those guys I mentioned in particular did to take them out of uh, their comfort zone? Yeah, so, so with RJ, I do think uh, I was a little disappointed with his performance, especially in the first half. I do think it's right, it's okay to be a little down on it. He made one pass that had me like a little like, okay, this is kind of the RJ we saw last season where he, he hit the corner on the weak side. I think it was for Julius, but it was a good pass, and I remember looking. I'm like, oh, that's a. It was it was when he drove all the way to the baseline, right? He had like a wraparound pass. Yeah, yeah, that one. I yeah, think it, it was, was to yeah. Julius. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I remember I, I, that one stood out to me, but the turnovers, which, you know, the travels were very like 50, 50, whatever you want, <laughs> whatever you want to call those. And they called um, a bunch on the caps too. It just seemed like a very weird point. It was, they do that in preseason a lot, right? Cause they want guys to adjust. Yeah. They, they called one on quickly that like, I'm, I watched it back like two or three times. And I'm like, I, that's not even a travel. Like they had a few, like they called one on Mitchell in the paint, which didn't look like a travel to me. Same, yeah, I don't know. It was a very, very weird game. Yeah, I don't know why they decided this was a point of emphasis for this specific game, but it was weird. Um, other than that, he, I think he had like one or two charging fouls. Like, but those, his charging fouls are always like frustrating because you can see it coming. It's like he put his head down and like everybody knows he's going up and, and like he just can't like contort himself away from the contact enough. But I do think like you guys, well, Stacey, you were touching on something where like he doesn't bump guys when he drives a lot of the time. So then he gets these like weird running floater shots that like, have like no shot of going in unless he gets like a foul call. That's the only way he gets like kind of bailed out of those situations. But um, I just think that it is kind of good to see him bounce back in that third quarter. Um, he's four or five, like you guys mentioned. I just, I don't know. It feels very like everything feels hard for him right now. And like anytime he does like a good thing now, it feels like a, like a breath of fresh air as opposed to like, okay, this is the standard, which I think we were starting to see last season where like when he made a mistake, it was like, it was kind of weird to see, and now it's kind of like when he makes a good play, it's weird to see. Um, but I do think we're, he's kind of figuring it out, um, and, and I think as long as his play kind of stabilizes where his bad games aren't like detrimental to the team as, as they were in, in the recent games, I think we'll be fine. And I can't remember what your second question was. The second question was how much, I mean, the Knicks held a good defensive team, or good offensive team to 82 points yesterday, right? Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, Garland and Mitchell are terrific players. How much of that do you think was particularly Grimes, McBride, uh, IQ's defensive pressure, and how much of it do you think was just a, like the Cavs missing open shots? 
I definitely think it helped, but I do think they missed a lot of shots that normally you would expect them to make. I, d- I haven't rewatched it yet, so I'm not exactly sure if, if the threes they were giving up were to shooters that you want to give them up to. I know Kevin Love missed a, a few good looks, um, but I do think they missed a lot of shots that, like, on a different night, it could have spiraled out of control. Um, but again, like, playing quickly, Deuce and uh, Grimes, it definitely helps. Like, there were some possessions where Mitchell, like, had to pick up his dribble because of Grimes or took a tough shot because of Grimes or, or do so quickly. Um, and I do think Mitchell in particular missed a couple of like pull-up threes that he normally would make. Um, the Knicks were still playing drop. He, he, he could get to the pull-up most of the time he wanted. but um, It did seem yeah, noticeably like I, easier to me when the starters were in um, or when, uh, well, for when sure. it was Barrett on him. Person, yeah, and especially in the first half because Barrett played 20 of the 24 minutes and then with with the starters, he was guarding Garland, which is not a good matchup for Barrett. Um, but the Knicks don't really have anyone else in that starting lineup who can guard the second guy that is Garland. Like, you don't want Brunson on him. You don't, you don't really want RJ on him either, but RJ is the better option of the two. So, I mean, I, I think that's another problem with the Knicks defense is, the, you know, Brunson, Barrett, Randall, they're the three guys who play the most minutes, and they're all negative on defense right now. Um, so it, it's hard for those guys. It makes it harder to have a good defense when three guys on your starting lineup are, are, aren't even, like, neutral on defense, which I think would go a long way if RJ and Julius could just get to neutral on defense and not actively, like, hurt them. Um, Brunson probably is just size limitations. It's mostly his issue. He gives good effort. But I think RJ and Julius could certainly, like, help um those guys like bring the defensive rating back down a little bit um do you think that there was one play early in the game yesterday where rj he got put onto garland kind of on the on the wing and garland crossed him up and got to the rim somewhat you know yeah the blowback easily yeah it was it was it was it was poor i don't remember many more drives like that against RJ yesterday, which like, I, I don't even think that's necessarily impressive. I think that should be expected, but like it's notable because he was giving up a ton of those to start the year. Do you think he looks like he's a little bit, he looks, does he look a little bit faster to you than he did to start the season? I don't know if I'd go faster. I don't know if that's the right word I'd use, but he definitely looks a little more comfortable, if that makes sense. Um, I, I feel like he was, like, if you watch that Memphis game from the very first game, like, that that was, I think that was probably, like, one of his worst defensive performances of his career was really bad. Um, he was dying on every screen, and he wasn't, like, really recovering. So just in terms of, maybe it is a health thing, but just in terms of, like, effort, I, I guess, is what it stands out to me more. I think even last night when he got when he was getting screened and, and like he got hit hard, I think he was making a concerted effort to try to fight back into the play, which I think is a huge step up from where he was at the start of the season, where like he'd get hit and then he'd just be like out of the play and it was on Mitch or whoever the big was to kind of really hold it down. But I definitely think there is some some improvement coming on that. Yeah, um, just it, it's he's had such a weird season and it's yeah. I. Don't know. I, I Look, the Randall stuff is just i I thought he had a ter- I, I thought he had a terrible game yesterday, um, and like not terrible because he shot poorly. It's the shots he took, and there's also this man. I, I got it. Like I've clipped a bunch of these plays, and I haven't tweeted them out because it, it felt like kind of like piling on, especially in the in, after the Dallas. Nobody played well against Dallas, so like 
singling one player out seems pointless to me. Um, but hey, I'm not Tom Thibodeau, so what do I know? Um, but like, he has these possessions, and it's so frustrating to watch. Where a god like it'll be Brunson, or it'll be Quickly, or it'll be you know RJ, it'll be some perimeter player who is look has a mismatch that they're looking to drive on. And Julius will just be standing directly in their path asking for a post-up. And it's like, you know, if that happens early in the shot clock, it's okay. But he does this all the time with like six or seven seconds left in the shot clock. And it's like, it's just like, dude, get the fuck out of the paint. Like, get out of there because you're like literally just clogging it up and really making this an impossible possession right now. But why don't you, he's just, why don't you tweet clips of other players? Why yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, like it's just like it, I don't even understand that. I'm like, dude, I have been shitting on RJ the entire season, so I don't really know what to make of that. But like, it's just—he's uh, just always in the fucking way on offense. He's always in the way. He's always oh, like Brunson. Like he'll he'll just stand in the middle of the in the middle of the floor with his hand out. He'll like as soon as this has been a new thing that he, that's been going on because Tibbs has settled on this rotation where Brunson and RJ go out together. And when Brunson and RJ go out together, that's when Randall in his brain, he's just like, all right, it's my, it's my time to just like be Kobe. And he will just like, he does this fake, like set a screen for IQ thing, but it's just, you know, set the screen and then roll in, down onto the block, raise your hand up and demand the ball. And it's like, he's not even fighting for good position, right? He's just standing there like 20 feet out with his hand raised. And you're like, what is like, what is the plan here? I'm so over this guy. I don't care about his, his efficiency. I don't care if the offense is better with him on the floor. I don't care that he's shooting better. I don't care that he has a better shot location. I hate the way he plays. I hate the way that his style of play influences the team's style of play. And I don't think you are going anywhere indulging this fucking idiot. Uh, and continuing to do so is an organizational failure. It's organizational malpractice. Uh, the fact that we seem so concerned with getting the best out of Julius Randle is so it, it's so misguided. It is so misguided, and I don't know. I, I just I can't watch this guy play anymore. And the defensive stuff with him is just like, I mean, come on. Like I I don't. I've lost track of how many times. You know, we talked about the schematic issues, right? And I get it. They're like not every the corner threes that come against him at times are not because he's not per executing the scheme and he's just dropping into the paint for no reason. But it's like you have to make the effort when you crash down into the paint to then recover after well, your well, shooter. The one, right? That's the scheme. The one you posted, I think it was early in the game, so um, fatigue was an issue, right? Well, even that one, if fatigue wasn't the issue, what happened was he got into the paint and he expected his man to just hang out there, right? Um, and then his, he moved. It was just a complete, I mean, I don't, I think if a rookie had that kind of poor awareness, they would get yanked immediately by any coach. He literally didn't move. He didn't move for, for six I, or seven I don't think seconds. he knew or thought that my guy might go to the corner. I should keep an eye on my guy. Uh, which is also, by the way, why he always fails to box out. Um, and that was, I mean, that was a terrible clip. It's, I don't even think it, like, he has a lot of lazy possessions, but he's lazy and lacks awareness. That's what's going on in his defense. And I'm ha higher on his offense for what it's worth than you. But yeah, the defense is just... And there's no excuse this year because he's not asked to do as much with, with Brunson out there. Yeah, I, I just... Look, again, it's like 
is he executing the scheme and you know we just talked about the issues with the scheme and why is it like yes all that stuff is fair but like you got to make the effort like rj has been bad on defense this year flat out bad on defense i rarely notice a possession where if he's in that same position he doesn't at least try to get back out to the corner shooter right like he might try and he might do it terribly he might not even get there he might do a stupid closeout where he doesn't raise his hand until the guy's already up with a shot like he do- there's a lot of issues to nitpick but he at least does the token effort of like okay i'm going to at least leave the paint and run out to my guy in the corner and we'll see what happens there's so many possessions where randall doesn't even do that like and it it's not like i remember he started doing this last year and the first game i noticed it was actually against the Cavs, and it was against evan mobley evan mobley had not been shooting three well last year he's shooting it even worse this year so i thought initially when i watched that i was like oh i think like you know he's just leaving him open because they want to leave him open they're daring him to make that shot but then he kept doing it regardless of who that player is like the play that was highlighted in that in the in the clip we were talking about yesterday from yesterday that was donovan mitchell like you can't leave donovan mitchell just open to the quarter and not even bother to recover out to him you know like i don't know and and i think it's it's so crazy to watch it because like what you notice now too is you'll see grimes make extra rotations that aren't even his rotations to cover up for this stuff and it's it's just ludicrous and it's not like it's not just uh randall like rj is culpable of this too uh mitch especially when teams go five out and i think ariel you you noted this during that dallas game like he just has no idea where he's supposed to be when a team goes five out uh and he like he had one possession where he closed out on kleba but then because he closed out Kleba front rimmed the three, but the rebound came right back to him. Um, it, it's like, but he, he's culpable of that at times too. You know, Brunson has been culpable. Like all these guys are guilty of it. And and Grimes has to make rotations constantly to cover up for these dudes. And it's like, look, this is why <laughs> before the season even started, I think most of us were like, yeah, no, Fournier cannot be the guy in this lineup. Like that, that's, you're just going to get destroyed. Um, and Grimes has been better, but it's just like, you're you're asking a hell of a lot of one guy to to cover up on the perimeter for schematic and personnel deficiencies. Yeah, I will say in fairness though, like when you see the the Grimes, IQ, and, and Deuce lineups, mm-hmm. or, or when Sims is out there as well with them, the the scheme isn't necessarily as much of an issue as it is with with like RJ Randall and Brunson. Um, I do think that. The scheme doesn't allow for like it's very tough to hide bad defenders uh, with, with with the scheme because you're, there's yeah. going to be a point where you have to cover a lot of ground and it's probably more ground than you probably should be covering, which which I think is also like kind of a smaller issue as to like why Fournier has looked so rough and why like even to a lesser extent like Hartenstein. It's just I, I think it's hard to it's harder to play bad defenders in the scheme like which is kind of also a, why I think the Knicks had success in that COVID season because Julius was, I think, like at a neutral level, if not good. I think RJ was good that season. And then even like Alfred, who I thought was the worst defender in the starting lineup there, I, I think like Julius was able to like propel that offense so much that it didn't matter. And then the, their bench just blitzed everybody. But I, I think even then, they, they weren't necessarily playing bad defenders. I think the worst defender was probably like rookie year Obi there. Um, but now, like when, when they tried to go a little more offense heavy, signing, you know, Fournier, I think you see those mistakes, or at least they're a lot easier to see 
maybe they were always there, but you know, when you got a slow, unathletic guy running around the perimeter, it's easier to notice like when a guy isn't supposed to be where he is. So I, I, that's just like a little thing I wanted to add on, on the scheme issues. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think really what it is, I mean, this is like with RJ and Randall is they're bigger dudes. Uh, they don't have a great like. <laughs> this is an issue for Obi too. They don't change direction great. So, like, when you have to tag down and then you're now you have to go back and you have to change direction and go recover out to a shooter, that's not great for them. Uh, even if Randall is playing with effort, like, it's not easy for him to do that. It's not easy for RJ to do that. It's not easy for Obi to do that. I think those three guys are probably the biggest issues, or not the biggest issues, out, biggest issues in that very specific thing we're talking about, right? That weak side rotation um and yeah like you're right when you see when you have three of iq when like i mean those lineups yesterday iq deuce grimes they were rough offensively but like defensively you're playing a totally different game now right um and it, regardless of who the center is that center is way more protected they are not out of position as much they can stay at home they can box out much better um and the Knicks had one of their better defensive rebounding games yesterday. I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, they only gave up eight offensive rebounds to the Cavs on 54 missed shots. That's really fucking good. If you, that's that's a defensive rebound percentage that would effectively lead the NBA. Yeah, I mean, let's keep in mind, ma- it, wide margin. it's probably a little higher than that because you have team rep rebounds and that kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, like, it's it's probably below, below, um, below 25. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it, they it, it's not, you know, they they had a very good performance on that end yesterday and again, I don't think it's a coincidence that you got 40 minutes of Grimes, 24 minutes of Quickly, 16 minutes of Deuce like they are your three best perimeter defenders not and, and like really it's not even that they Grimes. I love how Grimes was situational yeah. for so long and now all of a sudden he's ready to play 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it <clears throat> but like it's not those guys are just so much better on defense than everybody else that we have, right? Like in terms of perimeter defense, they're just way better than, you know, that, that Brunson, Rose, RJ, fucking Cam group. They're, they're just way better. Yeah. And, and if you're going to, you mentioned the struggles offensively, like, you know, one thing that could help them offensively, especially when they're playing with Hartenstein is to allow Hartenstein to, to make a play. <laughs> Um, his assist percentage I tweeted out the other day is like lower than Mitchell Robinson's. Well, it was at the time. I don't know what it is now, but that's insane because Mitchell Robinson <laughs> doesn't even do anything with the ball in his hands. So I mean, if they, you saw it in preseason and we saw it at the beginning of the season, but the fact that they don't let Hardenstein do anything or even try to do anything, it, it, it boggles my mind. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about that. But the NBA season is heating up, and there are still so many unknown. Outcomes possible. Can the Knicks win the Atlantic Division? Probably not. Uh, but you could bet on it. When I'm looking to get in on the action, I bet with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can bet just $5 pregame money line on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Check this out. Right now, everyone can earn up to a 100% boost with DraftKings stepped up same game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Place the same game parlay and combine multiple bets like which team will win, total rebounds, and more. The more legs you add, the bigger the boost, the bigger your shot to win big. 
Download the app now. Sign up with code TBPN. Place a $5 pregame money line bet on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. That's code TBPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Um, I want to bring this up real quick. Uh, I thought that was an interesting point. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. One second. Uh, I got to find this. Uh, so uh, Jonathan Macri of Nick's Film School, he tweeted this out yesterday, um, which, look, we know this is not true. But so if Derrick Rose is now out of the rotation, that's about $52 million in annual guaranteed money that front office spent in 2021 that is either benched, Rose Fournier, or they needed to pay a tax to unload, Noel Kemba. I'm being kind and considering Alec Burke's neutral value. I don't, I don't get this. Like one, Derrick Rose isn't out of the rotation. Two, Derrick Rose is a player that I guarantee with I would wager my life on Tom Thibodeau wanting Derrick Rose to be back. Um, he's not in the rotation. Tibbs wanted him back. Fournier's bad. That's a bad contract. Um, I think me and others were wrong. Uh, clearly that, oh, this contract isn't that bad. It seems pretty good. He's given us value. He's not giving us value anymore. It seems like it's just a matter of time before they do something with him, um, which <laughs> involves unloading him from the team. But like the Noel Kemba thing, I mean, look, yeah, they had to pay a tax to get off them, but wasn't that the point? Like the point was like, if we need to move this money, we can get off it really easily. Alec Burks was neutral value. I don't care what anybody says. Tom Thibodeau's usage of him was a joke, and it was probably the reason why his value wasn't where it should be. Uh, and I bet you this. I bet you, I bet money, the Pistons are able to get a, a, an asset for him this year. I bet they trade him, and I bet they get an asset for him. Because why? Because they're just like, yeah, we'll just keep you in your bench wing role instead of trying to play you, play you at starting point guard. Um, okay. But like, they they moved those contracts and they got Brunson. So like, wasn't that the point of those deals was that if we need to move them, we can move them quite easily. Like, and if they needed to move Derek Rose, don't you think they'd be able to move them quite easy, move him quite easily? Like that's the point, right? So I don't know. I, I have a lot of issues with this front office. And quite frankly, if they remain this tied to Tom Thibodeau, I think Leon should be fired with Tibbs. Um, but like, I, I don't know. I, this point, I, I, I get his, I get what he's saying, but at the same time, I just think like the point was that these contracts would be easier to move if need be, if you needed to create cap space and have flexibility. And so, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, aside from Fournier, I just really struggle with noting that. Like, were they mistakes? Yes, in the sense that none of them have delivered the type of results you probably were hoping for when you did sign them. But you were, but like part of those contracts was being able to pivot off of them if they became and and it's not like yeah it's I not like know. noel and walker were a straight salary dump right they i mean i you know i you can say that what it was the, the second round picks they had to give up to get off them fine yeah. right like people saying we traded out of the first round to dump them i think we've talked a lot about that but that's obviously a massive misrepresentation um I do think people who just casually like throw aside the first round protected picks that they got, but then they're like, but they need to rebuild the right way. Well, acquiring three picks, especially that should be not too much worse 
than the one we had is that is that right now you might say well they're not going to use them you can you can speculate on that but getting three picks instead of using one 11th pick and hoping to get a star is probably a more sound rebuilding strategy anyway um i think it's fair to say you know they've kind of tried to play both ends right they've tried to both do the young asset thing, but also they've hired Tibbs, and also they clearly are in the market for a star. Um, but um, but I think a lot of the criticisms of the front I don't think the front office is, should be immune from criticism. Um, I think a lot of them seem pretty misguided. Um, one, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you first, Schwinn, because um, I, I don't know if maybe you're more familiar with this, but um, the Mavericks allegedly wanted to move up to pick eight when the Knicks took Obi. <laughs> um, and if you think it's really bullshit, I I forget what pod. But it's no, I I don't think it, I don't think it's bullshit. I I don't think it's bullshit that they and they offered I think those Brunson eighteen and thirty or thirty one yeah. thirty one. Yeah. Um. So yes, sir. Good. No. So what was what was the question? The question is: Do like, you give credence to that report, and does that change how you view the front office at all? Yeah, I give credence to that report. Uh, I had actually multiple people DM me about it after I tweeted about it, and yeah, I give it credence. Let's put it that way. Um, they also, like, Bob responded to that tweet and said that they offered that package to every team starting with the fourth pick. I forget who had the fourth pick. I think Chicago. Chicago had the fourth pick in that trap. So they offered that to multiple teams. Basically, every every team between four and 12 which was uh, where Halliburton gets picked eventually by Sacramento. They offered that package to every single one of those teams. Every single one of those teams turned them down. And I, I, we look, there's a few things to note here, right? That's the first thing, really, that the front office did. Because if I remember correctly, the draft came and then free agency, right? So the draft was their first thing. We had all we had known from them was these little hiring tidbits that they made during, you know, when the league was shut down during COVID. But that was the first major event that they were responsible for. So I don't, I, the optics of them making that trade, just let's just start with there. The optics would have been atrocious for them to trade from eight, down to 18 and 31 when they already had, if we remember at the time, they had the 27th to 38th pick. They eventually packaged that to move to 23, and then they moved the 23rd pick to get to 25, and they also got the 33rd pick as well. Right? They had picks in those in that range. So they didn't need more picks. Um, the other part is like, it would have been terrible optics because your first move is to trade for a guy Second-year play, like, let's remember what Jalen Brunson was at that time. He was, like, a nice second-year player, and he was your former client who you've had, like, these family ties to forever. That's your first move as the president of basketball operations for the New York Knicks. I think that would have played off. Like, that would have just been a terrible move. Um, and, like, again, like, yeah, we can sit here and be like, they should have taken Halliburton, they should have taken whatever it is, they should have taken Desmond Bain, but it's like, you drafted good players. Like I don't, I don't really know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think one of my main criticisms of them is that they don't, they don't seem to value the players they've drafted quite enough. You know, like they don't seem to care that Obi Toppin is going to just be a sixteen-minute per night guy backing up Julius Randle for as long as Obi played thirteen minutes last night. Like, what is the fucking point of that? 
What is the point of that? You know, like, so to answer your question, yes, I give the report credence. No, I don't think not making that trade is much of a criticism of the front office. I think it'd be, it's, it's ridiculous hindsight, you know, to, to act like if Jalen Brunson was what he is today or what he was last year, let's just say at that point, at, but he had done that two years before. So at the time of this draft, I think they would have hundred percent made that trade. I think no question they would have made that trade. And we would have all been like, this is great. Like they just moved down 10 slots and got a starting point guard and they got an extra second round pick out of this. Like, yeah, you should do that trade, but that's not what like Jalen Brunson then is nothing like what he is now, or he at least isn't perceived that way. He wasn't playing that way at the time. He wasn't getting minutes like that at the time. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's where it is. Like I don't know anybody killing them for not making that trade. I think that's bullshit. If you want to kill them for not taking Tyrese Halliburton, sure, go for it. Um, I'm look. Let me know when Tyrese Halliburton's a net positive player on the floor. I'll be waiting. Um, I know it's a big challenge, but you know, generally speaking, if you're averaging twenty and ten, and you're this efficiency god. Well, you know, maybe that shouldn't be that. He hard. has played in below average talent starting lineups on shitty teams his whole career, right? So um, he's played on bad teams. Yeah. So right, but why well, can't I think be a, you can have a, a positive, positive. I mean, teams players that have positive ratings on bad teams tend to not play with the starters because that's where like the talent gap for the team is maximized, right? Like I think Halliburton probably would have a much better on-off um, on another team. Having said that, I do think he has pretty significant defensive shortcomings to your point. Um, I'm going to just throw this out there. I don't want to make turn this into a... Look, Halliburton's good. I, this is like somewhat facetious, but he has uh, the worst on-off on the team among major rotation players aside from Andrew Nembard and Benedict Matherin. Matherin doesn't start. Matherin comes off the bench. Nembard also comes off the bench. Uh, the guys who start, though, I think this is interesting. Uh, Buddy Heald is a starter for them, I believe. Uh, yeah, Buddy Heald has started 23 games. All 23 games of theirs. He is the biggest on-court positive uh, or best on-off on the team. He also has a slight on-court positive. He plays plenty of minutes with Halliburton. Uh, and Miles Turner also plays... It, like It's just the, the data here is weird. Obviously, Halliburton doesn't suck, but I do think like constantly just bringing up 20 and 10, oh my god, this like I, I there's something there that isn't getting... factoring in. Like... He, he cannot be this much of a negative if, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I, 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 it is definitely nitpicking, but like, fuck that. I'm going to nitpick because if I got to hear constantly about how, oh my God, the Knicks passed up on Tyrese Halliburton, he's some generational talent or something like, give me a fucking break, dude. Like, th- I've, I'm so sick and tired of hearing about the comparisons to Chris Paul. Like, give me, like, enough, enough, dude. I, I'm not some massive Chris Paul fan, but Chris Paul basically has been like, he he's been like a guaranteed fifty win team since what his second or third year in the NBA. Like it, this is not, they're not the same. Um, I want to, you know, I think this is worth mentioning. Ariel, curious to get your thoughts. I thought Mitch had a really good game yesterday. Um, he's had a lot of, he's had a string of pretty good games. Aside from the Dallas game, his last you know, four of his last five games, he's been really good. I think this is maybe as good as he's been defensively um, for a while. Do you feel like 
does he look better to you than he did last year, uh, just physically? And is this arguably the best he's looked in his career? I think his best stretch was right before that foot injury. Because uh, mm-hmm. he, was, he was legitimately, I think, the second best player for that first month in the COVID season with Julius Randle. Um, I, I think he was at a different level there. But I think this is the closest he's been to that level since. Um, I definitely think outside of that stretch in the Dallas game where he, he got to guard the, um, I think it was Maxi Kleber. I think other than that stretch, he's been phenomenal. And I think what's helping him a lot is that he's playing alongside Quentin Grimes. Um, I think those two make each other's jobs a lot easier. They're really helping each other. I tried. I did. I did a little like um, voiceover video on that. Um, I think that those two really like accentuate each other's like best qualities. Like when Grimes does get hit hard on the screen or he gets out of the play, while he's recovering, Mitch is able to play too and allow Grimes back into the play. And then I think it also works the other way around, where Grimes, where almost throughout. Mitch's career, whoever the the point of attack defender has been, other than like let's say quickly, he's had to kind of judge that his whoever's getting screened isn't going to be able to recover. So I I think those two are really making each other's games easier. And I think I think we're kind of I, I think an under talked about point is that Mitch he's getting a little more a little better around the basket and like I think his I think his like percentage around the rim has dropped a little bit, but I think he's showing a little more like comfortability with the ball, like taking a dribble. And I know it's just one dribble and it doesn't sound like much, but being able to gather and like go up with the shot that you're ready for, I think is is a good thing. So you're um, saying we're going to see some... step back three soon? What you're saying? All yeah, the Instagram like matches more coming. months. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I'm, I think he's been one of the, the the best Knicks on the team. Like especially recently, he's been like pretty essential to what they're doing right now. Well, the good things they're doing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think that's a great point on um, on the point of attack defense because um, I mean so much so much focus goes on the Knicks playing drop right, but um, one of the best defenders in the league, I would say, um, maybe you think this is an exaggeration, is Brooke Lopez, and um, obviously there's you know they've kind of put him in the right role, but he usually plays drop pretty deep, and they survive because they have an excellent point of attack defender. Um, in obviously Drew Holiday, right? And they have obviously and Javon Carter. Yeah, and Javon Carter too. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, shout out pesky uh, Pitbull West Virginia point guards, right? Who are um, we have one of those too, right? Um, so and you can see how much that helps, and I think that really stuck out to me with both Garland and Mitchell, where they did get pull up threes, but it's of a different nature when you can feel that dude on your back. When Mitch is in a little, like Mitch has a little bit more freedom in terms of where he has to be. But when the guy just dies on the screen, um, you know, that's what was most encouraging with Mitch, you know, the time you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think that that was really the closest he's been to. He had gotten strong enough to hold up better, um, but he was also still had that mobility and athleticism from his rookie year. Like, that was mm-hmm. the most promising, which, like, even if the guy dies on a screen, like, he can contest and win on an island against those kind of guards more often than not. That's probably gone, but you you give some you give him someone who's you know who's going to hold up against screens. He'll do enough to 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 help them get get back into the play, and um, and he's in a position where he doesn't have to um, take away both the jump shot and the drive, right? 
Yeah, I would I would love to see what those two, what their like synergy stats are, uh, defending the pick and roll together, because I think those two are legitimately like upper echelon in the league. Just from what I've seen in the past, like week or two, whatever it's been, those two like they're they're legitimate. You can build a defense around those two, like just with what they're doing. Like Grimes and Mitch, you're saying? Yeah, Grimes and Mitch. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, um, the base. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I know Grimes hasn't shot the three well, but. <clears throat> I really want to see what he would do with more latitude to do shit on offense. Um, some of the drives he's had, some of the finishes he's had around the rim are like, I, I don't know. Like, it's so weird because RJ gets to the rim all the time, right? But he's not like blowing past guys. It's kind of like, it's very methodical. It's very strength oriented. Um, he doesn't get a lot of separation, obviously, which but makes him have to put up some contested shots at times. Grimes probably will never be a high volume driver at that level, but like he actually, his speed is really good. I think his first step is awesome, especially when he gets to it. When he attacks a closeout, he is fucking gone. Like he had one on Brooke Lopez against Milwaukee where Brooke had to close on him in the corner and he was at the rim in a second. It, it was explosive. Um, he and and his some of his dump off passes when he did, like he he's just I want I would love to see him get more on ball reps and just freedom to do shit on ball because um, you know one thing I've noticed watching Phoenix this year is and I'm actually you know I'll look up his stats right now like McCall Bridges was obviously a very pure off ball type of player when he came into the NBA um, watching Phoenix this year he's still like mostly an off-ball guy, but he gets to attack a lot of closeouts. He has the freedom to do that, and I think he's encouraged to do it. Um, I really think that like Grimes could have... like He has at least that type of game, and I would like to see him take a couple of mid-range pull-ups um, at times, because like, I think that shot is available to him pretty much whenever he wants it, right? Because he's just... His ability to get into his shot is so quick, uh, and... I don't know. I, I would just like to see it. Uh, McCall Bridges, not significantly higher usage, but like, look, he was 12 point, like just year by year, 12.2 usage as a rookie, then 12.7, 14.9, 15.0, oh, 16.2 this year, career high. Some of that's inflated, right? Because Chris Paul's been out for so long, but like, you can, you, I don't know if you guys have watched Phoenix much at all this year, but like, you can see that they've encouraged him to do a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. His assist percentage, he has a career high assist percentage right now this year, too. Um, I would, hopefully like to see us encourage the same from Grimes because the flashes you see are really encouraging. And I think you mentioned something like that too, Ariel, where you were like, yeah, I definitely would like to see more of Grimes. Yeah. I wanted to see more on board thing. I have a, I have a Quentin Grimes stat for you. Like just to kind of show how the, the, the rapid improvement he's shown, like he played 751 minutes last season and he only took 22 attempts at the rim. He's played 288 minutes this season and he's already taken 25 attempts at the rim. And he's shooting 72% yeah. on them. Most of them are, it's not like he's like blowing by guys like off the dribble, you know. They're not, most of these are like assisted, but it's just the fact that he's like done so much. So, like, he's gotten so much better so quickly at this. Um, and it's also, ironically, something that quickly has also gotten better at is that I think the improvement that these two are showing and, and like at the speed they're showing is very encouraging. But yeah, I, I definitely, I, I believe in grinds. Like, I, I, I've, tweeted a lot that I'm very high on him. I have been high on him from the jump, and especially like what he showed in Summer League. I know in Summer League people were going to have their, their clips about it, but I just think that 
especially as the ball handling, he gets more comfortable. Like, I, I think we'll see more stuff from him, especially on the ball. Yeah, uh, and I think, look, what you said about quickly, like, I mean, look, quickly shooting 15.5% on twos this year. That's yeah. wild. Like, that's incredible growth. I, I, I tweeted this already today, but it's like he was 40.1% from two as a rookie, and he was 44.8% last year. Like, that growth is ridiculous. And I, I'm not I'm not worried about his three-point shooting. Like, is he ever going to be a 38, 39 high-volume three-point shooting guy? Maybe not. Maybe he's not going to be that type of off-the-dribble shot creator that we thought. But I do feel pretty comfortable that he'll get around to 34, 35% on a difficult uh, diet of three-point shots, right? Like, I, I think that is going to be there for him always. So to have that type of growth from two, I mean, yeah, he, he's shown a lot of growth. Grimes has shown a lot of growth. And I think this is why, I think this is the frustration for a lot of fans. Like, and maybe it's, I think it's like subconscious. I think this is the frustration when you watch RJ, right? Is you're like waiting for this development or this growth to happen. And it's not linear and it's not quite there. And you're like, where are you getting better at? Uh, I mean, it is worth noting. I think RJ Barrett is shooting a career high from two right now too. Um, he's at 47.2%. Last year he was at 44.2 year before 45.7 rookie 43.2. So he has improved. Um, but you want and expect to see more. And obviously the three point shooting has been terrible this year. I think that'll bounce back. The fact that he's shooting well on free throws feels very encouraging in that sense. Uh, he's up to 78, just under 78% this year, but like, yeah, you want to see more. And then obviously the playmaking stuff with RJ, like, I know quick, quickly had a zero. Assist. I, I actually really enjoyed quickly against Dallas being like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm just going to get my numbers up right now. Um, good for him. He did get his numbers up and he's at 53.9 shooting now. But like, I enjoyed that as like, as much as you can enjoy a zero assist game and a complete de- demoralizing loss. But like, um, I think, the, I think he's like balanced. He's trying, he, he's still in that process of like, okay, I, I need to have a better diet of shots. I need to get to the rim more. I can get to the rim more, and I'm a better finisher at the rim now. But I, I need to balance that with like still being a threat from behind the arc and playmaking for others. And I think he's like still in this, like it's it's he's feeling that out and he's trying to process it. Um, I think he's going to get there. I think the playmaking flashes are still pretty pretty high. And um, yeah, and just to add some color to what you're saying, so. Um, he was taking, as a rookie, he took 6% of his shots. This is basketball reference, so the numbers can be a little bit funky, but 6% of his shots uh, within three feet of the rim. Last year, it was 9% of his shots within three feet of the rim. Uh, this year, it's in fact, um, it's 15% of his shots are coming at the rim. He's also taking 20, 21% of his shots between three and 10 feet. Um, I bet a dollar that there's more between three to six than six to 10, but um but he's shooting and he's he's shooting 63% of the rim so he scaled up his numbers uh he scaled up his attempts at the rim while pretty much maintaining the percentage um and he's shooting between 3 and 10 feet 56% from the field um which is um it's a lot of those floaters but i think it's pretty easy to notice that the difference between the floaters when he gets them like close to the restricted area or after he bumps a guy versus like closer to the free throw line right um and he's getting more of those and he's shooting extremely high percentage i don't know if maybe his new teammate who is just a god in that range has rubbed off on him a little bit 
Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, probably, I mean, I would expect that 56% number to regress a little bit. But, um, but he's getting much higher quality shots. Uh, I think, like, compared to the end of last year, I think some of the passing, like, you'd like to see the assist bump back up. But I also think, like, he's made a lot of good reads that haven't gotten paid off. Uh, especially when guys aren't shooting that well. So, um, I mean, you just get, but like, on the three-point note, um, another reason why I'm not worried about three-point um, three shooting is he shot 30 set from the corners. He shot 38% and 39% his first two years. So even last year, when he struggled a little bit, he shot 39% from the corner. And that was about 10% of his attempts. This year, corner threes are up to about 17% of his shots, which I imagine playing with Brunson helps there. But he's shooting 19% on corner threes. Like that's just you know, that's just something. It's very difficult to imagine that continuing. Right. So. He had some nice, really nice drives last night. Um, I, th- I think especially like his craft around the rim is like rapidly improving. He had some like deceleration finishes that we haven't seen from him. Um, I just think that I've always been confident in the jumper, and like it hasn't really been. I think at the level that I think most of us thought it would be. Um, but I don't know. It, it just feels like even if he never gets to that like elite level, or not even elite, but like very good level of shooter, I think getting these buckets around the rim in that short mid range area is is really like it gives him a new element that I don't think many of us like really saw happening. Um, like if you just watch who he was in Kentucky, he's like a completely different basketball player. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Yeah, if you told me he's going to take fifteen percent of his shots at the rim and hit them at sixty three percent. I was extremely high on him coming out of Kentucky, to say the least. And I would have asked you for your dealer's number, but um, and I think that um, oh, we talked about, it, but I think the biggest thing is even if he's not maintaining that fifty-six percent, that opens up so much playmaking, right? Because now the big has to worry about a pretty efficient shot or the lob, um, or and then that's going to pull the defender down from the corner, right? So. And that's really that was I think the key to his improvement last year was that he's a threat in that range, and so it's not even about the shot itself and the efficiency, but it's how much it opens up um, from a play making standpoint. And I think you've seen a lot of that with Grimes too when he attacks these closeouts. Um, I think he's helping himself finish better. He's a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't say he's a limited athlete, but he's not. He's not a jump out of the gym guy, and he's six five with average length, right? So he's a plus athlete, but um, because he's had. Um, you know, so many, like, because he's showed the ability to pass and find guys, um, I think that, that freezes help defenders and gives him cleaner paths to the rim. And he uses his strength well. Um, so in addition to the burst that Schwinn was talking about, that's something a guy like RJ can can incorporate more. Is like the more he's willing to pass out, the more that's going to um, to help his efficiency as, as, a, um, as a finisher. So. Yeah, and I mean, look, I... I... If they trade this kid there, you have no fucking idea what they're doing. Um, you don't trade a guy improving at this rate who's as impactful as he's been already on the court throughout his career. Uh, that's just brain-dead management, if that's the decision they make. Um, I mean, look, uh, I, I, I should rephrase this. You don't trade him just to get a draft pick. You don't trade him because you don't want to pay him because you paid other guys. Like I, you, You figure that out but you keep that player unless you're trading him in a deal for a star or a rotation upgrade or a perceived rotation upgrade or something like if you do that, okay, fine, but don't, don't sell me on, Oh, we're going to trade quickly because we're going to get this 
awesome draft pick, which is going to be so useful for us when we trade for a star. I mean, no, I wouldn't not. even say a rotation. Like, if we get Harrison Barnes or someone like that, that might be a rotation upgrade, but it's like, what, what are we doing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, a rotation upgrade, like, Look, I'm just gonna. I'll just use an example. I don't think that they should do this. I'm not advocating for this. But like, if they traded for somebody like an OG and an OB, yeah, right. But that's also like, a younger player. But yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Like, if it's a younger guy who's a rotation upgrade at that level, where you're like, okay, I can kind of see it. Fine. But if you're just trading him for some unknown draft pick to use at a later date to acquire unknown star X, like that's bullshit to me. Uh, I can't get on board with that. And I'm very much against that. And like, if we're going to be completely honest, um, if you desperately need to trade one of these guys, like one of these young players, because for whatever reason, I mean, I, I don't know what the argument is at this point for keeping for that to be quickly and not RJ, like flat out. I, and I'm not, and I'm not advocating they trade RJ. I am saying that. If for some reason they've decided they have to move one of these guys because of their cap issues and roster logjam and blah, 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 like, I mean, what is the argument here? Because one guy has been positively impactful every year of his career. He continues to improve and show real improvement uh, in areas of that were perceived weaknesses for him coming into the NBA. Um, and the other guy is, yeah, he's just grown a little bit. He's definitely shown some signs, but like he's also been way more up and down, and his impact on court has not been anywhere near as much as quickly at this point in his career. So, like these are questions the front office. Like I don't know. Like if these are the decisions they're considering, then fine. But like follow the data and maybe make like to me the pedigree of RJ being picked third overall can't be guiding the decision can't be guiding a choice like that and if it is that's a problem and like look we've talked about this endlessly but like fucking trade randall like find a way then like i don't know like there's just to me trading the the 23 23 year old kid who is vastly outperforming his draft slot despite all the shit that you put him through uh that that's a really that would be a massive massive self cell phone and um i (laughs) i really hope that the front office doesn't do that um I, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts, uh, Ariel. We've talked uh, on this pod a lot about Obi. I think Stacy's not as bullish on him as I am, and I'm not even sure where I am in the bullishness t- hierarchy on Obi. But like, what do you what do you think about how they're using him offensively, and what are your thoughts on like, you know, I think it's safe to say that he's probably never going to be an impact defender, but do you think that he's can like is he capable of just being like a solid cog on that end? I think he's he's so hard to evaluate just because like he's just been grossly misused his entire career. Like it, it's it's so hard to like really understand with his skill set. Like if his skill set was maximized, what would he really look like? Just because I haven't seen it. Um, but I I just think the way he's being used this year is just gross. Like he's taking like over fifty percent of his shot attempts or from beyond the three point line. Like that that's insane for who he he was coming out of college. Um, and, and I think was it you that tweeted the the pick and roll stats? Yeah, yeah. That that is just yeah. Like that that was who you were drafting when you drafted him, and and then they just completely like ignored that and 
I just think defensively, I, I think he can get to like being like a neutral. I don't think he'll ever be like a plus on that end, unless he becomes like somehow this like really good like weak side run protector. I think that's like his like avenue to becoming like a good defender. Um, but I think uh, I don't really have confidence in him being like a plus on that end, just because he struggles to kind of like turn and it change directions. Um, but I think as a straight line athlete, he's like top tier. Um, but Obi's Obi's such a difficult like guy for me to like gauge just because like they ran a play yesterday and it felt like this is what you guys should be doing all the time where Hartenstein and Obi ran an empty side pick and roll like between those two and it's like Mm. those two skill sets like matching up together like I I don't think there's a better how do I say this there's no bench unit in the league with their two with their two bigs that are like have more skill offensively than the Knicks have like Obi and Hartenstein should be demolishing opposing teams bench big units like I, I think it's it's like basketball malpractice the way Obi Toppin is being used this year. Yeah, he's taking fifty six percent of his shots right now from three, that's um, which is that's just as a as a kind of like example. Uh, that is obviously a career high for him. That would also be uh, a career high for Emmanuel Quickly, who's never shot fifty six percent of his shots from three. Uh, he was at 52.2 as a rookie, 54.7 last year. He's down to 45.5 this year, which is actually a good sign to me. Like, that is, you know, we talked about it. That's obviously related to his improvement inside the arc. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The OB, <laughs> the other thing, and I, I forget, I think, so I actually, I mentioned this to a pot or two ago. This was Dean Joanu. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that on Twitter. Uh, he, uh, does stuff for uh, the Knicks wall. He tweeted this out, but it was like, and I, it, this, it actually, it, it makes complete sense where it's like, it's really hard to evaluate Obi when it's like, oh, well, he only got like, you know, he played 13 minutes and he only had two rebounds and four points. And it's like, yeah, I agree. But like, you need to play him like 25, 20, 25 minutes at least because players can have like 10 minutes of a game where they're not racking up stats. But then when you play them more, like as they get more game time, you see that play out. And it's like, if you just did his season by like 36 minute segments, regardless of how many he got in a game, but he's just breaking down 36 minute segments. I'd be curious to see what those numbers look like. Cause like, I mean, his per 36 right now, right. Is 16.7 rebounds, uh, seven rebounds. By the way, that would be a, that's a career high in uh, per 36 work for him. Uh, 4.7 assists, 1.6 steals. Like, I don't know. Uh, that's not like dog shit. I'm not saying it's amazing, but it's not dog shit. And uh, I don't know. Uh, it's just, it's all very odd to me to, to watch him. He's down to 31% now from three, but it's like, he's just shooting too many threes. Like, I, I don't know. I, I really don't like how they're using him. And I feel like, it's affecting his confidence and all kinds of things. I don't know. It's really all right. I was actually looking at it quickly. His numbers there. His his per thirty six. This is this is Obi's per thirty six. Sixteen points. Sixteen point two points. Eight rebounds. Two point two assists. That eight rebounds is slightly a career high. Six point eight defensive rebounds, which is a very nice career high. A uh, clear career high. So he's averaging sixteen eight and two uh, in like per thirty six. You know he's shooting now. 35% from three on 3.9 attempts per game. It's just, I don't know. I, I'm with you. I, I don't know. I, I don't really know what to make of, like, I don't know what to take of any of that. 
because it's just really hard to evaluate a player when they get two six to eight minute stretches in each half and that's about it yeah and it's not even just the the number of minutes it's like the quality of the minutes aren't good either it's like he's just out there and he's spotting up in the corner the entire time i mean of course this three point um rate is going to be insane like it is right now and also like they they aren't running things for him like they kind of were in the beginning of the season too like they when he was playing with cam off the bench they would run this play where like he'd set a stagger screen for for cam and he'd curl into the paint and then they kind of would have a counter to it where Obi would slip that stagger and then you'd get like a lob. Like you don't see that anymore. It, it just like disappeared from the playbook for some reason. It's like little things like that. I've just like completely gone away and he's turned into this like big wing as opposed to like this, I don't know, like rolling athlete that, that, that just makes things happen with his energy. Well, Tip and, said and they wanted to turn him more into a modern stretch board, <laughs> a, more, a modern like, power. <laughs> that's what he's working uh, for it was. Well, do you think that's what the Raptors him. should do with Scotty Barnes? Just have him spot up in the perimeter? <laughs> that probably does. <laughs> but I don't know. It just feels like a... And then uh, even his like, uh, his, like... He's not out on the fast break anymore. And I think that's in part because they want him to focus on defensive rebounding, which, which I understand that. But like that's where like a lot of his impact was coming because he was just getting easy, easy baskets. And, and a lot of people... It wasn't hurting the Knicks on the rebounding side last year either. You know, like I think mm-hmm. he timed yeah. his his releases pretty intelligently. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and it was like most of the time when he was like rotating like on a wing three pointer, and he could just like keep going straight. Yeah, I just yeah, I just think he I don't know. I think they're they're taking away from his strengths, and like it's a credit to him that he's been able. Well, he's struggling of late, I think, from three, but it's a credit to him that he's especially during his three seasons that he's been a positive. Well. It's a, that first half of his rookie season, um, but it's a credit to him that he's been able to to still like find a role in playing a style that like none of us would have foreseen for him when he was drafted. Yeah, I mean it's it is a credit to him. It's also just like I don't know. I, I mean, and this goes back to the front office too, where it's like, what is the plan here? Like, and I I am like, yes, the plan we want to trade for a star, fine, but like the way to do that you're not going about it intelligently, you know, like you're just not because if you think the best Avenue to get a star is to trade, like to build up the value of what you have and then make a move in the trade market. Fine. So be it. That's fine. But like, then you have to play your young guys more and you have to put them in positions to succeed. And like, you know, if you want to say they've, they've done fine, like they've done a good job with quickly fine. So be it. But like, he's not playing more. He's actually playing less so far this year, 22 minutes a game. Uh, compared to 25 last year. And I, that 25 was obviously inflated because of Derrick Rose being out and Kemba Walker being excised from the rotation. So that's the only reason it got as high as it did. And it wasn't because they created this new fucking pathway for him. Um, he's not playing as much. But, like, fine. You want to say they're doing an okay job with him? Fine. So be it. But then, like, what do you want to... Like, the OB thing is even worse. You drafted him eighth overall, and you seem perfectly content for him to do absolutely nothing but spell Julius Randle, and that's it. And, like, that's just so uninspiring from the front office. And, like, we can sit here and blame Tibbs until we're blue in the face, but this is who Tibbs is. This is what he wants to do. This is how he sees Obi's development. This is how he wants to use the roster at his disposal. And if the front office is fine with that, then fuck them. Like, I I don't know. I don't really understand any of this. Like, it, it just seems like a terrible process, even if your goal is ultimately to make a trade, right? And, like, we saw this in the Donovan Mitchell trade talks. Those guys didn't have the value that the front office maybe internally feels they have, but they don't 
but like, why would they? Because you're not putting them in a position to demonstrate the value they have. And this is why, like, like last year there was a report from Zach Lowe at the trade deadline that teams were looking to kind of like buy low on quickly. And it's like, yeah, of course they're looking to buy low on him because your coach doesn't seem to care or value him to the degree that the impact metrics say he should. And if teams see that, like, yeah, they might have a bunch of nerds like us sitting around the front office like, oh, my God, look at Emmanuel Quickly. He's on us. This guy is a real – He's a might be a star and hiding in plain sight. But, like, that's cool. They'll be like, thank you, nerds. But us, me, GM of the team, I am not going to give a first-round pick for a player of this caliber. Definitely not an unprotected one because I don't know. I don't know what he can do in extended minutes. You can throw all the rate stats at me. You can tell me, oh, look at his minutes in the fourth quarter at all. Fine. But like, you're, if you, the team that has this player, is not giving him that credence, if they're not trusting him, if they're not empowering him, they're not giving him a bigger role, then guess what? Like Teams that want to acquire him, they're going to try and acquire him for cheap, not for the value that you want him to have. Yeah, I, I, could, I truly believe that the biggest mistake the front office has made has not been drafting Obi Toppin over Halliburton or, or anything like that. It's not even re-signing uh, Julius Randle. I, I just drafting Obi over Pokashevsky. That was the real mistake. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, no, but like I'll just decide, I just, uh, continuing to employ Tom Dibbero as a coach is, is, is a mistake. He's like, I don't understand. There's so much upside to playing the young guys. And, and it's not just to play the kids, play the kids, like all the vets suck. That's not what it is. It's just this team is clearly, at best case right now, the way they're playing, it's 500. It's a 500 basketball team, give or take a couple games. But if you play the young guys, best case, one of the guys pops and, and you got something that you can really build around. Or or worst case, you know that they aren't that and you got to retool this team around like Jalen Brunson instead of, of this like holding out for a, for a star coming in the, in the next couple seasons, I just think that there's there's no upside to the way this team is being like deployed right now, and, and I think like the young guys are starting to suffer for it. I don't think RJ Barrett's struggles are all on Tom Thibodeau, but I don't think they're like when guys are struggling on the Knicks, you rarely see anything drawn up to, to make it easier on them, which I think is a big part of coaching. I don't think the game is ever even when Julius was struggling last season, and, and Julius yeah. definitely deserves blame for him, for the way he's playing, you know. But you don't you don't see anything like Everything just continues that status quo. Like it's on the players to figure it out, which just me personally, I don't think that's like a good coaching philosophy. I, I think you should try to maximize your players, make it easier on them. So I, I just think that when you see the way guys struggle on the Knicks and what those struggles usually are, it, it's almost always on them to snap out of it. And I, I just I don't think that's fair to them. But yeah, no, I I I've talked about this a lot. Like you, this is this is where like. The best example of this is out of timeout plays. Like, how often does Tibbs run something out of a timeout that gets like a high quality look, an open look? I, I don't think it's very often. And it's if you watch all of our after timeout or set plays, forget out of timeout, just set plays, right? So off like ball goes out of bounds, you have an inbounds in the front court. Like, we run the same exact fucking inbounds play every single time. It is such a chore for us to even get the ball inbounds. I'm surprised we haven't been called for more five-second violations this year. Because every single time, they end up having to like throw some over-the-top lob pass to somebody out way beyond the three-point line. You know, like There's never a clean entry. There's no, it's, it's just so 
infuriating to watch. And like, yeah, like I, I think Tibbs, Tibbs' offense is very much like it, it's, it's again, like I, it's you can boil it down to it's basically like pick and roll and mismatch hunting. That's a lot of what he is ultimately like. That's his philosophies and what the core of his offense is. And like the nature of those possessions is always about making a play, right? And even the things he says, right? Oh, you know, we want guys to make the right rim reads, you know, spray the ball out to shooters. Like all that stuff is good. And he's right that like the players need to make those decisions, but it doesn't feel like there's much guidance beyond those very basic tenets. And they're not scheming stuff to get guys open very much. Like look at the off ball stuff we run, right? Like grime. It's not like we use grimes as an off ball decoy to open up, you know, like, like, so in football, like you have all kinds of like misdirection plays, right. To like, Oh, eye candy for the defense. You know, you run, a, you make them think you're running a screen to one side and actually you're going to throw it the other way. Like teams do that in basketball, right? You have, like, look at how teams would use, like, a, somebody like a J.J. Redick, and defense decide to pay attention to this guy running around screens and staggers, and then meanwhile, like, you're opening up something for your drill penetration. Like, there's just not any of that going on in our offense. It's always so segmented, and, like, you know, there's so much pressure on ball handlers in this offense to create the openings themselves. And... um yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just think that's a big problem. Even with Evan Fournier, when he was playing, it was the same issue where he never – they didn't run things off the ball for him to, like, free up. There were no stagger screens. He wasn't coming off curls. It was just, like, the Julius Randle two-man game that devolved into, like, a Julius mid-iso post-up. And I also think the thing – like, Fournier he has his flaws. I'm not, like, defending Fournier. This isn't me putting Kate one for Fournier. But he even spoke to it a couple months in last season how, like, it took him some time to adjust because it was a new role for him. And like, and I think part of that was, you said this way earlier in the podcast, when, but how Tibbs likes to keep things the same. It, it always felt like he was trying to put him in that Bullock role instead of just letting Evan Fournier kind of be Evan Fournier offensively. And, and I think that's part of the reason why it's, he had that slow start. And then not that he hasn't adjusted because I think Fournier ended up like shooting well from three, but I think that it was a lot like, rougher and there was there was no like smooth sailing with a guy who many thought would just be a seamless fit offensively at least um yeah i mean i i don't i don't even know what else to say uh all right i mean i don't know if there's anything else you guys want to unpack uh before we get out of here uh actually a question for you Schwinn, a little bit unrelated to the knicks but uh i know you're a big soccer guy and um i uh i don't really follow it very closely uh, but I saw that the U.S. played pretty hard, seemed to, to do well everywhere besides the scoreboard against the Netherlands. Give like a 30-second, one-minute, where are you at on the U.S. men's national team? Uh, they are better than they have ever been. The world is also better than it's ever been, and the gap to the best teams in the world is still fairly considerable. Uh, they are weak in very critical positions. They don't have a striker. Their fullbacks are average at best, and their center backs fucking suck. So, uh, good midfield, decent wingers. You're weak at some of the most important positions in the modern game, uh, especially if you want to play a possession oriented style. And yeah, if you don't have a guy that puts in goals, that's going to be hard. Um, you know, you can't expect them to win without a star, Stacey. You know, <laughs> they need a true point. Uh, 
Yeah, they need a true point guard. I mean, look, the, it says it all. Like, like Christian Pulisic is like our fucking golden boy. Like this guy is an average player at the top level in Europe. He's not no other no no European team that's serious would even. He might be in the squad. That's about it. So um, that's the gap. You don't have the necessary top end talent yet. You do have good players. You do have players that are playing at the highest level in Europe. Uh, you need more of those guys. You need those guys to not just be playing at the highest level. You need them to be difference makers at the highest level. Uh, and yeah, I'm not totally enthused by the coach, but uh, I mean, I think his in-game decisions are much more curious than his strategy coming into games, his pre-game game planning, I guess you could say. Um, you know, it's like, one of those football coaches where it's like Andy Reed. they're yeah, right? Like your your game planning all week leading up to the actual game is good, but then when you have to make adjustments in game or make decisions in game, they're fairly curious. Uh but to be fair to him, like look, you, the starting eleven is good and then everything after that, you can see when they have to make changes, they don't have a lot of firepower, they don't have a lot of options off the bench. Probably should have played Gio Reyna more. I don't know what was going on there. I think he only started training right when they got to Cutter, so maybe he wasn't, you know, in the necessary physical shape to, to extend him as much. But um, you could see the difference in the second half when he came on against the Netherlands, and I don't think that was a coincidence. So, yeah, they just need... I think they'll be... They have a chance to, like, make a decent run uh, when they host the World Cup in 2026. And they're, they're a young Most of these team, guys, right? So. Yeah, yeah, they're a super young team. Most of these guys will be entering or in their primes. Um, when that World Cup comes around, they should have probably some emerging young talent that will be added to the roster. Hopefully, some striker will emerge because lack of having a striker is a really fucking big problem. Uh, you could see how hard it was for them to score goals. So uh, that is my Team USA breakdown. Who's your pick to, to win at this one? Uh, I've had Brazil the entire way. I think Brazil will win. But France looks really good. Um, actually surprised by how good they look. I thought they were kind of a mess coming into the tournament, but they've bounced back well, and Mbappe is fucking great, so womp womp. yeah, he's he's really good, but I, th- I still think Brazil takes it. They have the best 11. Um, they have the strongest team, front to back. I think Neymar should be back. If they win, they have to win this match, but if they win this round of 16, pretty sure Neymar will be back for the quarterfinals and everything thereafter, so that would obviously be a big boost. Yeah, so I still have Brazil. I like their team the most. Um, yeah. All right. That was our soccer segment of the pod. Uh, that is our pod for today, though. Hope everybody enjoyed that. Uh, Ariel, thank you so much for coming on. Let the people know where they can find you and uh, plug anything that you'd like to plug, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, just follow me on Twitter at APachecoNBA. Yes. Everybody give him a follow. Uh, Ariel does some of the best uh, breakdowns, tape breakdowns that you will find on Twitter. Uh, Knicks related or otherwise, uh, he is great. So definitely give him a follow. Stacy, uh, let the people know where they can find you. Plug anything that you would like to plug. Uh, you can find me at Stacy Patton eighty nine. Um, nothing to plug yet, right, right now. Uh, all right, great. Yeah, I don't have much to plug, so I'm just going to plug all the wonderful work that is going on at the Strickland. Uh, check out our YouTube page. Check out the Instagram. Subscribe to our Patreon and to the Discord uh, where the conversation, again, never stops. But that is our pod for today. I hope everybody has a great week, and I will see you on Friday.
Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.